Father, we come before you. We give you thanks again just for the time of year that we dwell. Uh, The fact that we had Thanksgiving and all of us, Lord, most of us were just satisfied with the food that we had. So much abundance. We are so blessed in this country. And we know that there are millions that go without. And Father, we know that you are the God of mercy, the God who cares, the God of grace. And as this time of year approaches where Christmas is celebrated, help us to be those known as givers to those who have nothing. Uh, Whenever the opportunity arises, Lord, help us to be a blessing to others. And Father, we desire that you bless us with your word, that you teach us, guide us, help us to avoid the mistakes of the Israelites and mimic their successes. We thank you for their testimony and what it means to us that we might follow you with whole hearts. Bless us this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I left off last week with the observing of the Sabbath, and that was in Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through 17. And the Jews were required to keep the Sabbath, and if they did not, they were to be stoned. Uh, This is something that somebody was to be put to death. It says that in verse 15, for six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath must be put to death. And so today, this idea of the Sabbath, and I talked about it briefly last time, but I want to make sure I just establish this uh, for us under the heading of Christian. The Sabbath is Saturday. I mentioned that to you. That's the first point. I think I'm going to give you about six points here. The Sabbath is Saturday. It is not Sunday. Secondly, nowhere in scripture did God instruct the church to make Sunday the Sabbath. It is just simply by tradition that we have done so. That's because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day. He appeared to his disciples twice, once in the morning and once in the evening on that first day. And so the Christians, a lot of them in the beginning of the church, they would go to synagogue on Saturday and then they would get together and worship on Sunday. And so Sunday became quote unquote, the Christian Sabbath, just simply by default. It's the day that they chose to meet. Thirdly, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And what this means is the Sabbath was instituted by God for the benefit and refreshment of humankind, not that people were made to carry huge burdens of regulation on the Sabbath. And again, that would have been Saturday and not on Sunday. And then there are those who would have believers refrain from any personal pleasurable pursuits on the Sabbath. And I'm talking about Christians now. There are Christians that would say, we need to keep the Sabbath, or they would put quotes around it, the principle of the Sabbath. And we know that working seven days a week, it'll eventually catch up with you. And if you don't sleep seven hours a day at least, or maybe six for some, five for others, at least if you get some sleep in every single day, whatever you can operate on, you know that you'll do much better. And so this idea of rest, we have to catch back up. We have to allow our body to heal. And so I understand that where we have to rest. You take some time out. I personally take chunks of time. I usually have to work six or seven days a week. This is work for me, although I enjoy this work. I enjoy my work during the week as well. But I have to take a time of rest where I just kind of crash. Now, we all deal with, most of us deal with this idea of when you don't do anything, you feel guilty. 
right? You sit around and say, I should be doing something. But there are those in Christendom that would have us give up just about any kind of pursuit that would benefit us in a pleasurable way. For instance, is there a Charger game on today? They would say, you shouldn't be involved in watching a Charger game. Do you watch movies? On the Sabbath, you should not be watching a movie. Do you travel somewhere on the Sabbath, quote, the Christian Sabbath on Sunday? You should not travel. Do you go to any sales on Sunday? You should not conduct business on Sunday. Your conversation should only be about spiritual matters. And I will get to another point on this, but there are simply those who would say this is how we're to live according to God because it is one of the Ten Commandments that we're supposed to follow. And they would quote various people from the past, and there were a lot of people in the past, even in this country. I can remember at a very young age traveling part of the country with my parents And we had Bermuda shorts on, and we had Converse tennis shoes, and we had white T-shirts, and we had Brill cream in our hair, and we would travel around in a Plymouth Fury 3 station wagon with paneling on the side. And we went from here to Denver, and sometimes we'd find ourselves driving on Sunday, and we'd go through these towns, and these towns would be completely shut down. And this was in the... (coughs) It was... (laughs) You know, it was way back. It was in the 60s is when it was. And I would ask my mother. I would turn to her as we were riding in the station wagon in the back. And it had that seat that faced back. You know, that was the coolest place to be, obviously. But we'd turn around and I'd ask my mother. I'd say, why, why are all these places closed? Because they'd worry about getting something to drink, go to a store. But all the stores would be closed. And they would make mention of that. And I said, well, why? They said, because it's Sunday. My mom would say, it's Sunday, dear. And that's what she would say to me. And I go, oh, like church and God. And she goes, yes, that's why the buildings are closed. The businesses are closed. And so there was a history in our country where this would be the case. It's not that way anymore. Things have changed for us, specifically in the church. They have changed. Now, there are sectors of the church that still observe this. And I'll make mention of that in a moment. But do you know that... uh, Moses prohibited any form of work on the Sabbath unless it's something of necessity or piety or of emergency in nature uh, weren't to do really anything that involved work. Like if you were a fireman and you were called to a fire on a Sabbath on a Sunday, you should go because that is something that is it's good, it's full of character that you would put out somebody's fire and you guys kind of get the idea of what this is all about. But In Exodus, it is wrong to kindle a fire for cooking. It is wrong to gather fuel. It is wrong to carry burdens. And it is wrong to transact business on the Sabbath. Now, if someone feels that they should not do this, and they're doing it, or not do any of these things, and they're doing it for the Lord, I believe it is admirable if they wish to do that. It it actually helps them in their piety, and their piety is their devotion, their respect to God. If that's how they choose to honor God, I say, have at it. Do it with all your might. Whatever your hand sets to do, what your right hand sets to do, do it with all your might. But also the Sabbath speaks, and I mentioned this last week, 
The Sabbath speaks of the rest we obtain both now and in the future when we receive forgiveness from God for our sins. This is in Hebrews chapter 4. And you might want to make a note in Exodus chapter 31 to Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. It talks about the Sabbath here. It says, For in Joshua, or if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest, present tense, also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. So he's simply saying, enter into Christ. Christ is the one who is our rest. And so that fulfills the Old Testament commandment to keep the Sabbath. Not that it's full of regulation. Now, if we kept the Sabbath the way that they did in the Old Testament, even the principle, what should you do to somebody who doesn't keep the Sabbath? Well, maybe not stone them, but at least flog them, right? Uh, Bring them up before the church and flog them and chastise them. And that's the principle that carries with it. It's not that you would kill them, but there's supposed to be some type of downside to not keeping it. But we're under the dispensation of grace. And so we're not supposed to carry out such acts like that. We're not, especially in leaders in the church, it's not the job of the leaders of the church to force people to act in a particular way. That's not what church leadership is about. Church leadership is supposed to be about service. They're supposed to be the greatest in God's kingdom, serving everybody, not coming along with the rod every five seconds and whacking a sheep over the head and saying, get in line, you know, and make them follow the sheep that's in front of them. If somebody's involved in something like that, that is cultish behavior. And we want to make sure that we are not getting anywhere close to that type of behavior. We can all agree that keeping the Sabbath was part of the law of Moses. Can't we agree on that? Well, in Acts chapter 15, in verse 5, it reads, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must circumcise or be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Remember the Judaizers in the book of Galatians? Paul talks about them there. He said, you guys have to be circumcised, or the Judaizers did. And he was so angry with them. He goes, I'm going to say it in the vernacular of today. Why don't you just go ahead and slip with that knife? That's what he was telling them. If you think you ought to keep this, just go all the way there, brother. Just, you know, just miss with the knife is what he was telling him. He was being sarcastic to the nth degree. He wanted to make sure that they understood there was no reason for somebody to be circumcised if they were doing it for the sole purposes of identifying with Jesus Christ and being part of the church. And also they wanted everybody to obey the law. It says it right there in Acts chapter 15, verse 5. Now, in Acts chapter 15, verses 19 through 21, we had the council that met together. Remember, Paul goes down to Jerusalem. He talks to all the uh, apostles down there, and James is the one who speaks for the church. And he says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them, abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now let me ask you, is it wrong for a Christian to eat blood sausage? No, it's not. Well, what's the deal here? What about meat of strangled animals? 
If an animal was strangled and you wanted to eat some meat from a strangled animal, could you do it if you wanted to? You most certainly could. You could do that. What about somebody makes a sat? You're over in India. In India, in, in India, they have food that is sacrificed to idols, and that's the local market too. And they sell some of that food in the local market. And you walk in there as a Christian. Can you go buy some of that food and eat it if you want to? The answer is yes. The only one in here that falls under God's moral law is the sexual immorality. These four things were particularly offensive to the Jews of the day. And so James, speaking for the entire church, the rest of the apostles, it's like, look, we're not going to put this burden on them of following the law of Moses. We don't want to make it difficult for somebody to do that. And then sixth, my sixth point on this, we are never to judge how someone keeps a day of rest. If you decide you don't want to do anything, on a Sabbath, if you want to go to a Charger game, Lord willing, you won't go to a Raider game. But then if you... <laughs> Anyhow, you, you get the idea. If you want to go do something on a Sunday, and in our day and age, sometimes it's the only day that you have, it's not my job or any other Christian's job to condemn that individual if they wish to do that. It says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. And that would include the special Sabbaths that they would have, like in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and also on the Passover you have a double Sabbath that's in there. Don't let anybody judge you if you keep it or not. And if you do keep it, well, praise the Lord. If you don't keep it, well, praise the Lord. Romans chapter 14, verse 5 also talks about this. It says, one man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And this talks about in Romans 14, 1, that the stronger individual is supposed to bow to the desires of the weaker individual as not to stumble them. And so we're to be considerate of those who feel they have to put up a lot of hedges, that in order to be more pious, they have to fill their lives full of things that keep them hedged in. We never want to go around and start cutting down those hedges like, brother, you need to exercise a little freedom. You don't want to do that. You want to make sure that you are walking in a way that is not stumbling to others a lot of times you know we'll put things on facebook that uh, if you look at them you go i think that might stumble others if they see that and we want to make sure we're not being involved in that type of thing be careful what you post out there because even though you may think you have the freedom to do that and you very well may whatever the activity is you want to make sure that somebody who is a younger Christian doesn't come along and say, I am so stumbled. Now, just a personal story on this. When I became a believer, <clears throat> I, was, um, I was like a torch in the hand 
or on the tail of a fox. Now, if you remember the Old Testament story, there's a guy who did that. And it was Samson, and he tied this torch to a fox. And I think three foxes, if I get the story correct. And he set them loose in dry wheat fields. Now, what do you think that did? Oh, just talk about a firestorm but he was a judge in israel and the philistines were his enemies and and so that's what he did and when i first got saved that was me i i had this torch i was lit on fire and who is that i don't know but he's done a lot of destruction you know he's just going his way and i was very sensitive to the do's and don'ts and i can do this and i can't do that just tell me what i need to do and what i do not have the freedom to do and everything will be fine and i'll just fall in line and i had this uh, couple they really were the ones who discipled me and i met them i was a waiter and i met them in a restaurant and it to make a long story short i ended up going to a home fellowship that they started and we became really good friends and i would meet with this guy in the morning and we would run around the benita golf course and we would talk about spiritual things because i was just like a sponge whatever information he could give me i wanted to absorb it and so i thought you know i'm going to get them a nice gift for christmas and i got them this box and it was all wrapped up nice and i went to the door and I rang the doorbell and I waited for them to come to the door and I handed them the box, the woman who was there, I handed her the box and she took it. And she looks at me, she goes, oh, thank you. This is so nice of you. Is it wine? And I go, oh, wine? You drink wine? You know, on the inside I was just dying. I'm... I was going, oh, and my idea of them was just shattered. You, you drink that, the alcohol. And, you know, later on I came to learn that, you know, it's the drunkenness, right? This doesn't give anybody the freedom to go do it if God hasn't told you. But I learned later that some people have freedom to do things and other people do not have freedom to do things. And I was extremely stumbled at that point. I just walked away and I go, Lord... They're such sinners, you know, and I'm just, how do, how do I get through this? And, you know, eventually the Lord taught me, uh, and maybe she shouldn't have said that at, the po- at that time, but, you know, I, I came to realize that we have so much freedom that if we exercise it the way God has given it to us, we will stumble people left and right. And that's why Paul says, not all things are beneficial, but I am free to do anything that I want, basically is how Paul encapsulates it. And so we want to make sure when it comes to the Sabbath, we are not pointing the finger at people. We are not demanding a particular lifestyle or behavior pattern that they model, whether you're there or not. It's none of our business how somebody else operates. And we want to make sure we give them the freedom. And they will stand or fall before the Lord. And they are the ones, or we all are the ones, who will give an answer for the way that we've lived our lives here And hopefully we all trust in the grace of God and we extend it to others. Now picking it up in verse 18 here in Exodus. It says, When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Now some accounts of these two tablets... The size, I started thinking about the size of these things. How big are they? And Moses is carrying these things. In one account I read, it was from a Jewish source, 
was that they're 18 inches by 18 inches by 9 inches thick. Now you see Charlton Heston coming down off the mountain with these two little paper things with rounded tops on them, right? This Jewish website said that is a construction of artists. They're probably just square tablets is what they were. Now they had to be small enough to fit inside the Ark of the Covenant. And inside there also was a jar of manna and Aaron's rod that had budded. So those three things were in there. But these stone tablets and written on both sides were heavy. Now recently there was a movie that came out, Exodus, with Christian Bale. If you saw that, you feel like I do. It is such a misrepresentation of who God is. They represented God as this petulant little kid who was kind of angry all the time and just capricious acting the way that he wanted to and then you see this picture of Christian Bale with a chisel and a a hammer chipping out the ten commandments when the bible clearly tells us it was the finger of God that did that he is the one that wrote these things down and Moses carried them down and I don't know if they were actually that big nine inches whether nine inches by one in the description wasn't very clear nine inches maybe one stone or nine inches combined stone I don't know but I've picked up big pieces of flagstone before and they are heavy if you have something 18 by 18 by nine inches thick that is heavy and he's walking down this mountain delivering these 10 commandments now how hard would you have to throw a stone like that to break it pretty hard you would have you'd have to pick it up over your head nine inches thick that's going to weigh over 100 pounds maybe 150 pounds i don't know it depends on the kind of rock that was used and that's the description god wrote on these things by the finger of god it says in exodus chapter 31 verse 18 and so This is the two tablets of the testimony. The two tablets of stone were placed in the ark, as I just said, and with the other elements that were in there. Now, chapter 32, as we get into it, the scene shifts from Moses being on the mountaintop and coming down to the valley. Now, are you familiar with that metaphor? Being on the mountaintop, and you look around, and it is just beautiful if you guys have ever been to the high sierras the top of a glacier point or the top of half dome you get up there you look around and all you see are the mountain peaks and if there's a little snow out there it's just beautiful the granite and the trees and the atmosphere we've gone up there before taken the youth and we've watched the sunset and walked back down at night it's just a beautiful experience to do that but when you get to the bottom you go back to the real world right the Calvary Chapel Conference Center up in Twin Peaks, it's up in the mountains. And they would always tell us whatever conference we went to up there, if it was a pastor's conference, a couple's retreat, a men's or a women's retreat, they'd always say, now remember, you're going down the mountain. You're going back to reality. And when you'd get home, we'd always tell the men if their husbands went on a retreat or if their wives went on a retreat, men don't have husbands. At least hopefully that's not how it works in the church. But if the husbands had their wives coming home we always told the husbands make sure the house is clean the kids are clean and everything is put away and things will be nice when she gets home and and so the woman would come home and if it wasn't like that it was like mayhem ensued right and so you go to these valleys these areas when you've been on the mountaintops or you have an experience with god that just lifts your soul 
or like some of the worship. You know, when we do worship sometimes, I'm just going, yeah, oh, that was awesome. You know, not because I sing it, but because people have written it. I get a chance to be with the other ladies up there and you guys are all singing. We hear it. So it's like, oh, it's great. And then after it's all done, somebody will come up to the church and go, I got bad news. Oh, what? And it, you know how it just turns into that? Not that bad news isn't a part of life. It is. But we have to be prepared for that. So here's Moses. He comes down off the mountain. And what does he see? He hears laughter and singing. And he goes, this is not good. And as he gets down there, he notices that they are really up to no good. The problem with the mountaintop experience is that you have to come down off the mountain, just like the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, Jesus went up with his disciples and Peter opens his mouth, stumbles out a few words and says, it is good that we are here, Lord. Let us set up three little tabernacles or tents or shelters for you, Moses and Elijah. It'll all be good. And Jesus in all of his glory is going, Peter, you know, and, and they go back down off the mountain and these guys are just elated. What's the first person that Jesus runs into according to the book of Matthew? A demon-possessed boy. He's demon-possessed. There's this glory up on the mountain, gets down to a demon-possessed boy. And Jesus is kind of flustered. Have I been with you so long? You know, and okay, and he casts out the demon. And that's all good, but there's problems right away when he came down off the mountain. Well, Moses comes down and finds God's people engaged in idolatry and sinful revelry. What this was, was drunken orgies. These people were sacrificing to a bull made out of wood and gold and drinking and getting involved in all kinds of debauched acts that were out there. And so it was not good. And we know that he broke the two tablets of stone. But these people, they had grown impatient. And impatience mixed with doubt is a recipe for disaster. And you can write that one down. Impatience mixed with doubt is a recipe for disaster exodus 32 verse 1 when the people saw that moses was so long in coming down from the mountain they were impatient they gathered around aaron and said come make us gods who will go before us as for this fellow moses who brought us up out of egypt we don't know what has happened to him aaron answered them take off your gold earrings that your wives your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me now was he a leader No, he was a follower. He followed the crowd. Aaron, the first high priest, was a follower. He needed Moses there to keep him in line. So all the people took off their earrings, verse 3, and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioned it with a tool. Then they said, These are our gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink or get drunk and got up to indulge in revelry. And it was not good. Again, as I just said, so they were impatient while waiting on Moses. The people were not waiting on this messenger of God. Another example of this is Saul who was waiting for Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 28 and verse 7. He, he wanted to speak with Samuel actually and God would not uh, 
allow it because Samuel was dead. And he's trying to get some kind of direction. And he's making sacrifices and he seeks out this witch of Endor. And this witch of Endor is a necromancer. He was impatient, waiting to hear from God. He didn't hear anything. He said, well, come on, what's, what's going on here? I'm going to seek a necromancer and bring up Samuel from the dead. Well, Samuel comes up from the dead. Remember, we're not supposed to be involved in this kind of stuff. Don't go to somebody who's a necromancer and say, will you speak to Aunt Harriet for me? You know, don't be doing that stuff. It Just stay away from it. It's not good. But it cost him his kingdom rule and the lives of his sons because he did this, because he summoned up the dead. And he had even given the decree that nobody in the land is to be caught doing this. If they were, they were to be put to death. But he sought out a witch of Endor. And she was having his identity hidden from her. He tried to disguise who he was, but she realized it. She screamed when Samuel actually came up from the dead. It was just a bad thing. So there were repercussions for his impatience. And he was supposed to just sit there and wait for God to talk to him. We're to cultivate patience and trust in God and do not doubt. Now, patient or being patient. Romans chapter twelve twelve says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. That we're not supposed to just be impatient. When is this going to end? The Lord knows when we go through trials and problems. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse four says, love is patient husbands and wives when is that man gonna do what's right i'm sick and tired of this he just why when is he gonna stop lord it's your fault you know and you turn to the lord that type of thing or lord it's the woman just like adam right it's the woman you gave me she's the reason for this and we're not patient the Lord's working on this person and working on you. The Lord has determined that you need patience. So what did he give you? Somebody to test your patience. That's how it works. And, you know, God says you're not very patient, so here's what I'm going to give you. And that's how the, the, our God operates. He gives us exactly what we need. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle and patient. That's what God wants from us. James chapter 5 verse 7. I already have given you, this is the fourth verse. There are more. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crops and how patient he is for autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. So he's talking to an agrarian society. Now, it's going to be coming up in April and April is the time to plant a garden I've done this with my kids on a couple of occasions and we put the corn we'll get about three or four rows you put the corn out there about six eight inches apart and you drop them in there and they would go out there every day look daddy and there would be you know this corn sprout coming up and then the the husk would start to form up there and i'd say now look for worms and, okay and they'd get up there they'd pull apart the silk and they'd see the little worms going in there it's just really exciting but not once did my kids go out there and go grow you know, it's not going to grow any faster when you're impatient nothing you can do will help that plant to grow faster nothing you can do will perfect your impatient attitude you have to let the lord's work just take its course and when it does it's great it has been said by jean jacques rousseau that patience is bitter 
but the fruit of it is sweet. And so if we can wait during this time of being impatient and wait in such a way where we are tolerable, it will go good for us. Patience is not the ability to wait, but the ability to keep a good attitude while waiting. You see, anybody can wait. Have you seen people wait with a bad attitude? Oh, yeah. You you see those people all the time. Uh, Have you been out to Black Friday? Did you see some of the videos of that stuff? Last count that I saw, it was nine dead, 46 injured. And I saw these pictures. I don't know what it was in. I think it was somewhere offshore somewhere. They had these, you know, roll-up garage doors. You know what those are? They, they had those inside the store. The people actually broke them down. And the, the people were waiting to open up the doors. Uh, there must have been 25 of them sitting there in all the same color shirts. They scattered to let the flood of people. It was like a flood of water coming in. And the people just poured over each other, tripping and trying to get in there. They were very impatient. And what have we come to as a society, you know, where we have to have that item? And then the fighting. Did you see some of the videos of the fighting over, like, towels? They were fighting over towels. It's like, what? We have no patience whatsoever. Well, with this idea of patience comes doubts. That's the reason that we become so impatient. We're not sure of what's in front of us. And God wants us to be sure that everything that happens in our future is for our good. If we love God and are called according to his purposes. That's Romans 8, 28. James 1, verse 6 says, But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That's the double-minded man or the double-minded woman. We're not supposed to doubt when we ask God for a request. We simply hang back and wait. And we're supposed to wait with a good attitude. Now, I've asked for several things in my life, particularly just a few. I can count them on one hand. And I'm tired of waiting. You know, I, I want God to answer my prayers. But obviously, I haven't learned patience. Now, I'm trying to dial it down. Okay, fine. I'll wait. But I, I'm not going, all right, Lord, it's just wonderful. I'll go ahead and I'll just, I'll wait. I'm so happy. I, I don't do that, you know, and I've got to work on that too. But these doubts, doubts make us unstable. It causes us to do stupid things. Now, when it comes to God and worshiping God, it was hard for the people. And I understand this. It was hard for them to worship that which they didn't see. Sexual immorality was the result of forsaking God and they dove into it head first. Now, without God, we give up the fight. and We revert back to our old ways. People who have forsaken Christ, who have gone to the ways of the world, they get involved in all kinds of stuff and making dumb decisions, but it's the path of least resistance. Walking the Christian walk requires us to be circumspect. It requires us to walk a narrow path, and we have to do it voluntarily. We have to say, okay, I'm going to do this for the sake of the Lord, because we want to do the Lord's will and not our will, and it's for our eventual entry into heaven. We want to make sure that the transition is not so difficult, that we don't have to be baptized again and wash and cleanse the body, you know, before we get into heaven. I'm speaking metaphorically here. But as believers, we're encouraged to avoid the pitfalls that the Israelites were involved in. They were engaged in the fight, or they were not engaged in the fight. 
They resisted and they doubted. They were impatient. And because of that, they fell into sin. As I said before, it was the French philosopher, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He's the one that said this from the 18th century. Patience is bitter, but its fruit is sweet. Uh, the, the reaping and sowing of patience, it turns out so much of a benefit for us in our lives. It not only benefits us, but it benefits those who are around us. It took 40 years of wandering through the wilderness to remove the doubt and cultivate patience in the part of the people the Israelites. And God knew it would take that long. Now, depravity is our default setting. You ever go to a computer and, would you like to make Mozilla your default browser? And you click, you know, on that. Yes, if you use that or you use Chrome or whatever you use as your default browser. Well, for us, it's depravity. And when things aren't going well, we go, Okay, I'm going to default settings right now. Click, and you get involved in something you shouldn't be involved in because the computer is slow. It's not working as fast. It's frozen up. Have you ever seen those videos of people getting mean on their computers, slapping them and throwing them and kicking them and breaking them? Well, that's the same thing. I'm trying to bring a contemporary meaning to this here. Our depravity is our default setting, corruptness, degeneracy, and wickedness. Then the Lord said in verse 7 of chapter 32... To Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Do you know what stiff-necked means? It means, yeah, you're stubborn. You won't bow your neck. You won't put it down humbly. You'll, no, I won't do it. You know, when you're wrestling, I used to wrestle in high school and in college. And when I'd wrestle, you know, you'd resist as much as you possibly could. And this one guy, it happened at Palomar College in their geodesic dome that's up there in their gym. We're all wrestling and it's a tournament and we're all going around and this guy's resisting, resisting and resisting and all of a sudden you hear this crack really loud. And you go, what was that? And this guy had resisted to the point that it broke his ankle. And he stood up and he was hobbling and his ankle was just kind of flopping back, back and forth. That man had resisted. He was stubborn. He was not going to give up and it cost him. It cost him a broken foot. And everybody, you could hear the, oh, the horror inside the gymnasium when you heard the two bones crack on the lower part of his foot, on his leg there on the shin. And so these people, they also did the same thing. And God was going to break their ankle because of it. There was a plague that swept through the camp. It goes on to say, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. In other words, he's going to call a lot of the people. Just like you would turkeys for Thanksgiving, he was just going to go through and wipe them out. But here we have a successful intercession, and mercy is the result. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Oh, Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, 
It was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servant Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the skies. And I will give your descendants all this land, I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented. In the King James, it says what? Anybody have a King James? Repented. The Lord repented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. In this particular case, Moses makes an appeal based on God's grace and not on the merit of the people. He said, God, it's because of you, for your holy name, for your goodness, and the testimony about you, please don't wipe out this people. He makes an argument like an attorney. God changes his mind. Now we're at a problem here. Does God change his mind? Now, there's a couple of ways to look at this. I, <clears throat> I read this and went to a couple of different um, versions of the Bible. And it, it seems like God changed his mind. What's the word used in the King James? Repented. What's the word used in the NIV? Relented. In other words, he turned around. Now, either he did turn around or he didn't. And a lot of times when it comes to interpretation, we get stuck on a previously conceived theological bent. God doesn't change his mind. For instance, and I've talked about this before, and I'm going to touch on it again. I have four minutes. Before I do that, there are four people who successfully argued with God. Actually, I can think of a fifth right now, but there are four. Moses and the golden calf, he said, spare your people. Moses said, please, Lord, spare them. He goes, okay, I'm going to spare them. Then Abraham pleads for Sodom. If he hadn't pleaded or pled, I'm going to have to look up that word, but if he had not interceded for them, who would have died? Lot would have died. And because he interceded, God saved Lot. He allowed Abraham to you know, intercede for him. That was good. Then Mary asked Jesus to perform a miracle in the wedding at Cana. What did Jesus say when she first said, Jesus, you do something. He goes, woman, is it my time? Just do whatever he says, right? Kind of forced is him. All right, fine. You know, you can kind of see what's going on. And we don't imagine God like that, right? We imagine God, he goes, I know Mary's coming and she's going to ask me to do something and I'm going to turn to her in a holy stance and say, woman, it is not my time. And then he's going to do what he wants. You know, we have this idea, this portrait in our mind of who God is, like Jesus, meek and mild, wearing white, and he doesn't put a whip up and he doesn't clear the temple and start yelling at everybody and clear the animals. Probably some people say no, but I think he probably used the whip on some people that were coming at him. He probably turned to you and snapped that thing right on them and probably caused a welt. I'm, I'm sure that's probably what he did. Some people disagree with me on that, and I'm just telling you, it's my opinion, okay? I'm going to tell you when it's my opinion. But then Hezekiah. Hezekiah, you know, things were not going so good for Hezekiah, and a prophet shows up. God had told him, look, you're going to die, Hezekiah. Get your things in order. 
And Hezekiah says, please, God, don't give me some more years. You know, it's all good. I've done good things for you, please. And he goes, okay, I'm going to relent and I'm going to give you 15 years. What about Jacob? Jacob, the name, if you had to translate it in the vernacular today, it means dirty, sneaky thief. That's what it means. According to Chuck Smith, I remember him teaching us that. Dirty, sneaky thief, he wrestles with God, right? This is a real wrestling match. This isn't something that's made up. This isn't something that's an epic story. This isn't something that's a conglomeration of a bunch of people getting together, and this is what we're going to call it. No, he was doing a wrestling match. Double leg takedown, fireman's carry, full Nelson on the back. You know, they were doing this in the dirt. They were wrestling. And how long did they wrestle? All night. When we used to wrestle in high school and college, it was six minutes, and you were dead tired. This guy is not only a dirty, sneaky thief, but he has stamina that just will not stop. He is a stubborn, stiff-necked person. No wonder the Israelites were like their father, you know, going back. And so the, the Lord was wrestling with Jacob, and he goes, I'm not going to let go of you until you bless me. And then he did end up blessing him, but it cost him. It cost him because he touched the shank, the sinew in his leg and made him cripple from that point on. So if we want to be stubborn against God, it's going to cost us, right? So did God change his mind? I'm out of time. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, When we get into it, there's just so many exciting things to learn we ask that you would just help us to maintain these thoughts and, and consider and meditate upon your word that we may avoid the errors that so many have made before us. And Lord, we are prone to wonder. We are prone to leave. Help us, Lord, to remain close. And when we blow it, we call upon you for your mercy. We ask for your forgiveness, Father. As your word says, you will forgive us if we simply ask. So we do that. We ask that you would forgive us. But Father, in this Christmas season, restore us to such a point that we can gladly be your witnesses, that we can carry out your will. Help us to maintain your word in our hearts that we do not stray far. Imbue us with the power of your spirit to carry this out. And we will bless you and sing your praises. All for your sake, Lord. Please do this. In Jesus' name, church said.